Chapter 22 of The Ship of Stars. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ship of Stars by Arthur Quiller Couch. Men as Towers. It was May morning, and Taffy made one of the group gathered on the roof of Magdalen Tower. In the groves below and across the river meadows, all the birds were singing together. Beyond the glimmering suburbs, St. Clement's and Cali St. John, over the dark rise by Bullingdon Green, the waning moon seemed to stand still and wait, poised on her nether horn. Below her the morning sky waited, clean and virginal, letting her veil of mist slip lower and lower until it rested in folds upon Shotover. While it dropped, a shaft of light tore through it and smote flashing on the vane high above Taffy's head turning the dark side of the turrets to purple and casting lilac shadows on the surplices of the choir. For a moment, the whole dewy shadow of the tower trembled on the western sky and melted and was gone as a flood of gold broke on the eastward-turned faces. The clock below struck five and ceased. There was a sudden bearing of heads, a hush, and gently, borne aloft on boys' voices, clear and strong, rose the first notes of the hymn. Te Deum Patrum Colimus, Te Laudibus Prosequimur, Que Corpus Cibo Refesis, Colesti Mentum Gratia. In the pauses Taffy heard, faint and far below, the noises of cow-horns blown by the street-boys gathered at the foot of the tower and beyond the bridge. Close beside him a small urchin of a chorister was singing away with the face of an ecstatic seraph. Whence that ecstasy arose, the urchin would have been puzzled to tell. There flashed into Taffy's brain the vision of the whole earth lauding and adoring, sun-worshippers and Christians, priests and small children, nation after nation prostrating itself and arising to join the chant, the differing worlds agreeing sacrifice. Yes, it was praise that made men brothers, praise the creature's first and last act of homage to its creator, praise that made him kin with the angels. Praise had lifted this tower, had expressed itself in its soaring pinnacles, and he for the moment was incorporate with the tower and part of its builder's purpose. Lord, make men as towers, he remembered his father's prayer in the field by Tewkesbury, and at last he understood. All towers carry a lamp of some kind. Why, of course they did. He looked about him. The small chorister's face was glowing. Triune Deus Hominum, Salutis Octor Optime, Immensum Hoc Mysterium, Ovente Lingua Canimus. Silence, and then with a shout the tunable bells broke forth, rocking the tower. Someone seized Taffy's college cap and sent it spinning over the battlements. Caps? For a second or two they darkened the sky like a flock of birds. A few gowns followed, expanding as they dropped like clumsy parachutes. The company, all but a few severe dons and their friends, tumbled laughing down the ladder, down the winding stair, and out into the sunshine. The world was pagan after all. At breakfast, Taffy found a letter on his table addressed in his mother's hand. As a rule, she wrote twice a week, and this was not one of the usual days for hearing from her, but nothing was too good to happen that morning. He snatched up the letter and broke the seal. My dearest boy, it ran, I want you home at once to consult with me. Something has happened. 
Forgive me, dear, for not preparing you, but the blow fell on me yesterday so suddenly. Something which makes it doubtful, and more than doubtful, that you can continue at Oxford. And something else they say has happened, which I will never believe in unless I hear it from my boy's lips. I have this comfort at any rate, that he will never tell me a falsehood. This is a matter which cannot be explained by letter, and cannot wait until the end of term. Come home quickly, dear, for until you are here I can have no peace of mind. So once again Taffy traveled homewards by the night mail. Mother, it's a lie! Taffy's face was hot, but he looked straight into his mother's eyes. She too was rosy red, being ever a shamefast woman, and to speak of these things to her own boy. Thank God, she murmured, and her fingers gripped the arms of her chair. It's a lie. Where's the girl? She's in the workhouse, I believe. I don't know who spread it, or how many have heard, but Honoria believes it. Honoria! She cannot... He came to a sudden halt. But mother, even supposing Honoria believes it, I don't see... He was looking straight at her. Her eyes sank. Light began to break in on him. Mother! Humility did not look up. Mother, don't tell me that she, that Honoria... She made us promise, your father and me. God knows it did no more than repay what your father had suffered. Your future was everything to us. And I have been maintained at Oxford by her money, he said, pausing in his bitterness on every word. Not by that only, Taffy. There was her scholarship, and it was true about my savings on the lacework. But he brushed her feeble explanations away with a little gesture of impatience. Oh, why, mother? Why? She heard him groan and stretched out her arms. Taffy, forgive me. Forgive us. We did wrongly, I see. I see it as plain now as you, but we did it for your sake. You should have told me. I was not a child. Yes, yes, you should have told me. Yes, there lay the truth. They had treated him as a child when he was no longer a child. They had swathed him round with love, forgetting that boys grow and demand to see with their own eyes and walk on their own feet. To every mother of sons there comes sooner or later the sharp lesson which came to humility that morning, and few can find any defense but that which humility stammered, sitting in her chair and gazing piteously up at the tall youth confronting her. I did it for your sake. Be pitiful, O accusing sons, in that hour. For terrible as your case may be against them, your mothers are speaking the simple truth. Taffy took her hand. The money must be paid back, every penny of it. Yes, dear. How much? Humility kept a small account book in the workbox beside her. She opened the pages, but seeing his outstretched hand, gave it obediently to Taffy, who took it to the window. Almost two hundred pounds. He knit his brows and began to drum with his fingers on the window pane. And we must put the interest at five percent. With my first moderations, I might find some post as an usher in a small school. There's an agency which puts you in the way of such things. I must look up the address. We will leave this house, of course. Must we? Why, of course we must. We are living here by her favor. A cottage will do, only it must have four rooms because of grandmother. I will step over and talk with Mendarva. He may be able to give me a job. It will keep me going at any rate until I hear from the agency. You forget that I have over forty pounds a year, or rather mother has. The capital came from the sale of her farm years ago. Did it? said Taffy grimly. 
you forget that I have never been told. Well, that's good so far as it goes. But now I'll step over and see Mandarva. If only I could catch this cowardly lie somewhere on my way. He kissed his mother, caught up his cap, and flung out of the house. The sea breeze came humming across the sand hills. He opened his lungs to it, and it was wine to his blood. He felt strong enough to slay dragons. But who could the liar be? Not Lizzie herself, surely. Not... He pulled up short in a hollow of the Tollens. Not... George? Treachery is a hideous thing, and to youth so incomprehensibly hideous that it darkens the sun, yet every trusting man must be betrayed. That was one of the lessons of Christ's life on earth. It is the last and severest test. It kills many morally, and no man who has once met it and looked it in the face departs the same man, though he may be a stronger one. Not George. Taffy stood there so still that the rabbits crept out, and catching sight of him paused in the mouth of their burrows. When at length he moved on, it was to take not the path which wound inland up to Mandarva's, but the one which led straight over to the higher moors to Corwithiel. It was between one and two o'clock when he reached the house and asked to see Mr. and Mrs. George Fiel. They were not at home, the footman said. Had left for Falmouth the evening before to join some friends on a yachting cruise. Sir Harry was at home, was indeed lunching at that moment, but would no doubt be pleased to see Mr. Raymond. Sir Harry had finished his lunch, and sat sipping his claret and tossing scraps of biscuits to the dogs. "'Hello, Raymond. Thought you were at Oxford. Sit down, my boy. Delighted to see you.' "'Thomas, a knife and fork for Mr. Raymond. The cutlets are cold, I'm afraid, but I can recommend the cold saddle. And the ham. It's a York ham. Go to the sideboard and forage for yourself. I wanted company.' My boy and Honoria are at Falmouth yachting and have left me alone. What, you won't eat? A glass of claret, then, at any rate. To tell the truth, Sir Harry, Taffy began awkwardly, I've come on a disagreeable business. Sir Harry's face fell. He hated disagreeable business. He flipped a piece of biscuit at his spaniel's nose and sat back, crossing his legs. Won't it keep? To me it's important. Oh, fire away, then. Only help yourself to the claret first. A girl, Lizzie Pezek, living over at Langona, has had a child born. Stop a moment. Do I know her? Ah, to be sure. Daughter of old Pezek, the lightkeeper. A brown-colored girl with her hair over her eyes. Well, I'm not surprised. Wants money, I suppose. Who's the father? I don't know. Well, but damn it all, somebody knows. Sir Harry reached for the bottle and refilled his glass. The one thing I know is that Honoria... Mrs. George, I mean, has heard about it and suspects me. Sir Harry lifted his glass and glanced at him over the rim. That's the devil, does she now? He sipped. She hasn't been herself for a day or two. This explains it. I thought it was the change of air she wanted. She's in the deuce of a rage, you bet. She is, said Taffy grimly. There's no prude like your young married woman, but it'll blow over, my boy. My advice to you is to keep out of the way for a while. But, but it's a lie, broke in the indignant Taffy. As far as I'm concerned, there's not a grain of truth in it. Oh, I beg your pardon, I'm sure. Here, Honoria's terrier, the one which George had bought her at Plymouth, interrupted by begging for a biscuit, and Sir Harry balanced one carefully on his nose. Untrust, good dog. What does the girl say herself? I don't know. I have not seen her. Then, my dear fellow, it's awkward, I admit. 
but I'm dashed if I see what you expect me to do. The baronet pulled out a handkerchief and began flicking the crumbs off his knees. Taffy watched him for a minute in silence. He was asking himself why he had come. Well, he had come in a hot fit of indignation, meaning to face Adoria and force her to take back the insult of her suspicion. But after all, suppose George were at the bottom of it. Clearly, Sir Henry knew nothing, and in any case could not be asked to expose his own son. And Honoria? Let be that she would never believe, that he had no proof, no evidence even. This were a pretty way of beginning to discharge his debt to her. The terrier thrust the cold muzzle against his hand. The room was very still. Sir Harry poured out another glassful and held out the decanter. Come, you must drink. I insist. Taffy looked up. Thank you, I will. He could now, and with a clear conscience. In those quiet moments he had taken the great resolution. The debt should be paid back and with interest, not at five percent, but at a rate beyond the creditor's power of reckoning, for the interest to be guarded for her should be her continued belief in the man she loved. Yes, but if George were innocent, why then the sacrifice would be idle, that was all. He swallowed the wine and stood up. Must you be going? I wanted a chat with you about Oxford, grumbled Sir Harry. But noting the lad's face, how white and drawn it was, he relented and put a hand on his shoulder. Don't take it too seriously, my boy. It'll blow over. It'll blow over. Honoria likes you, I know. We'll see what the trollop says, and if I get the chance of putting in a good word, you may depend on me. He walked with Taffy to the door. Good. Easy, man. And waved a hand from the porch. On the whole, he was rather glad than not to see his young friend's back. From his smithy window, Mandarva spied Taffy coming along the road, and he stepped out on the green to shake hands with him. Pleased to see your face, my son. You'll excuse my not asking ye inside, but fact is, he jerked his thumb towards the smithy, we've a-got our troubles in there. It came on our youth with something more of a shock that the world had room for any trouble beside his own. Tis the Dane. He went over to Truro yesterday to the wrestling and got thrawed. I tell him there's no call to be shame. Twas Luke the Windron fella did it in the treble play. Inside lock backward and as pretty a chip as I ever see. Mandarva began to illustrate it with foot and ankle, but checked himself and glanced nervously over his shoulder. Isn't looking, I hope. He's in a terrible pour about it. Won't trust his cell to spake and don't want to see nobody. But as I tell him, there's no call to be ashamed. The fellow took the belt in the last round and turned his man over like a tab. He's a proper angel witch, that wondering fella. Stank pond in both ends and he'll rise up in the middle and look at he. There was no one a patch on him but the Dane, and I'll back the Dane next time they clinch. Tis a nuisance, though, to have him like this, with a big job coming on, too, over in the lighthouse. Taffy looked steadily at the smith. What's doing at the lighthouse? Hadn't he heard? Mandarva began a long tale, the sum of which was that the lighthouse had begun of late to show signs of age, to rock at times in an ominous manner. The Trinity House surveyor had been down and reported, and Mendarva had the contract for some immediate repairs. But tis patching an old kettle, my son. The foundations be clamped down to the rock, and the clamps have worked loose. The whole thing will have to come down in the end. You mark my words. But these repairs, Taffy interrupted, you'll be wanting hands. Why, of course. And a foreman. A clerk of the works. While Mendarva was telling his tale, 
over a hill two miles to the westward, a small donkey cart crawled for a minute against the skyline and disappeared beyond the ridge which hid the Tolans. An old man trudged at the donkey's head, and a young woman sat in the cart with a bundle in her arms. The old man trudged along so deep in thought that when the donkey, without rhyme or reason, came to a halt halfway down the hill, he too halted, and stood pulling a wisp of gray side-whiskers. "'Look here,' he said. "'You ain't gonna tell. That's your last word, is it?' The young woman looked down on the bundle and nodded her head. "'There, that'll do. If you wayn't, you wayn't. I've taken ye back, and us must fit and make the best of it. The children never be good for much, born lame like that. But was to be, I suppose. Lizzie sat dumb, but hugged the bundle closer. "'Tis like a judgment. If your mother'd been spared, twouldn't happen. But twas to be, I suppose.' The Lord's ways be past finding out. He woke up and struck the donkey across the rump. Guan you, Yep. Why did you mean stopping like that? End of chapter 22